Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. And before I read my text, um, I, I want to say a few, just a few things by way of introduction to this psalm. Um, first of all, if you if you read your your bulletins and saw that the text was Psalm 119, and, and you know anything about Psalm 119, and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, he's going to read that whole psalm to us." Um, if you don't know, it's 176 verses, <clears throat> and um, I just put that in there to to alarm you, um, to to give you something to chat over. No, I'm not going to read the whole thing, and and maybe uh, I should, but I'm not. Uh, it is, of course, the longest psalm in the in the psalmody uh, in the in the book of Psalms, 176 verses, and um, it also is not uh, given a designated author. But nobody really seriously doubts that that David is the author of the psalm, although it's not stated that he is the the author of the psalm. You will also notice, I think, or at least hopefully you can notice, that each uh, that the psalm is divided up into 22 sections, and each section is a um, corresponds to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If you'll notice at the top of each section, like uh, right above verse one, you'll see Aleph, and then over uh, at verse nine, you'll see B E T H. That is not Beth. That is not a lady's name. That's Beit. That's the, um, the Hebrew alphabet is Al, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion. And, and so you, what you get here is um, 22 sections which correspond to the each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's what those, those things at the top of each section are. And then inside each section, inside each subsection, uh, in each side of these 22 sections, the first word of every verse begins... With that letter of the Hebrew alphabet, for instance, in the in in, in the second section of Beit, uh, the first word of every verse begins with a B. <laughs> that's that's our English equivalent, I guess, or close. Um, so it's it's a masterful piece of poetry, if nothing else, uh, to have arranged it and put it together in this way. What we what we might ought to do is um, is preach twenty two sermons. One on each section uh, on this psalm, but um, we're not going to do that. I can tell you that there was a, if you know the name Thomas Manton, Thomas Manton was an old Puritan, and Thomas Manton preached a series on this psalm of 190 sermons. Now imagine that, ladies and gentlemen, if he was preaching in the mornings uh, on, on Psalm 119, and he's only preaching in the mornings, that's just shy of four years spent in Psalm 119, 190 sermons in Psalm. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary um, on the on the Psalms, it's called the Treasury of David. Some of you have that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has 348 pages written about this one Psalm alone, and I read every word. Not. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't. I read a lot of it, but not all 340 pages. Um, but uh, you can imagine the the um, the superficiality with which we're going to cover it today in one uh, 30-minute uh, ditty. The third thing that I wanted to say that you really need to know is that the, the unifying factor of Psalm 119, the, the one unifying factor or the one unifying theme, is its discussion of the Word of God. And it does it 
under several different headings. That is, it uses different words, several words like statutes, testimonies, law, rules, uh, precepts, commandments. But they're all used interchangeably. They're all being used um, as, as almost synonyms. But the, there, there are some secondary themes like uh, affliction. Uh, there's a lot in this Psalm on affliction. But the, the primary theme of Psalm 119 is the word of God uh, under all those various headings. So what we're going to do with it this morning is this. Um, we're going to take a look at at some of the things that this psalm claims that or or that it that it does for uh, in the life of the believer. Some of the roles that it plays in in the life of of Christians. We're going to look at three such roles. Um, two of them, two of the roles are are fairly obvious. Um, but the third one, which we're going to save to last, is really downright counterintuitive. And, and I hope you know what I mean by the time we're finished. But the, the first two, I think you could probably come up with before I even start. But all I'm trying to do to you is show you three of the roles that the psalmist says this book is to play in the life of the believer. So, without further chit-chat, I want you to, I'm going to read one section to you, at least for now. It's going to start in verse 41, and I'm going to read through verse 48. And uh, it's from this section that our third role will be taken, uh, which I have called counterintuitive. But you'll see more about that in a minute. Let me read to you, beginning at verse 41 through verse 48. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. For my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your, on your statutes. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God. This endures forever. Three roles. Three roles that uh, this psalm claims to play in the life of the believer. Here's the first one. It, it, um, it provides or it becomes my counselor. Now, uh, let me just read you some texts that say from the Psalm. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 98, uh, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. One of the things that this book or this psalm claims that this book is supposed to do is that it is supposed to be the counselor for the people of God. It is supposed to be that thing from which we draw advice 
to give us an ability to live life skillfully. Gang, um, it, this is a book, or this is, yeah, the book is, a, is, is designed to do a lot of things, but one of the things that it's supposed to do is to provide for us insight, insight as for, as to how we might live more successfully in the, in the spiritual sense. You may have heard me say this before, but wisdom, you know there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, you know that, but wisdom is a competence in the face of the complex realities of life. And, and from where do you, where does that come? Well, one of the claims that this book makes is that it comes from here. This, your counsels make me wiser than the teachers. It makes me wiser than the aged. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Guys, a godly life lived in a, in an ungodly world is no simple assignment. So, one of, one of the sweetest kindnesses God has shown us is to give us a compass that will steer us safely through the minefield of life. Guys, that's one of the things that this book is supposed to provide. A moral compass that will help us steer through some of the complex realities that we, that we face until we arrive safely at home. In this psalm, David does not claim superior intellect. He's not saying that you gotta be a really bright boy to understand this. He never makes such a claim. He doesn't even say that he is a better student of it than anybody that's ever been a student of it before. He doesn't say that either. He simply says that as somebody who loves and follows this God, this book has been my counselor. It steers me. It advises me. It counsels me. This book offers free counseling. Guys, um, the, the, the study of this book is simply the, the means through which God graciously imparts wisdom to his people. A wisdom that makes me wiser than the aged, makes me wiser than my teachers. The tragedy, of course, is that when you and I or anybody else tries to ignore the counsel that's contained in this book, we, um, we think we know better. We think we can do it more wisely. And that's when, that's when trouble begins. Let me give you a couple of examples. A couple of weeks ago, I was having um, lunch with six manly men, and they were we were all talking about the economy. And and these guys, uh, they're not pastors; um, they're good guys, and they they were all suggesting, and I was pretty much listening. I, I, I do do that, um, but they were all suggesting that this economic mess that we're in has been brought on by greed. And uh, a greed that has been fueled and made possible by debt. I guess you saw the um, what the stock market did this week. It um, it went below seven, it went below eight thousand, uh, because now they're discovering that not only are banks having trouble with uh, recovering their mortgage loans, 
they're now realizing that the, they're, they're got bad loans just in the credit card uh, section of the bank. That is, uh, we bought too many iPhones. And um, now we can't, not only can we not pay our mortgages, we can't pay, we can't pay our credit card debt. And so the, 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 as, the, as the problem gets bigger, that is, our realization of the problem gets bigger and bigger, um, the, the economy continues to soften and soften and deepen and deepen in whatever it is that we're in. Now, folks, I, I, I know that there is a legitimate place for debt. But I tell you, I think you'd agree, I think the whole nation would agree that um, uh, debt, unreasonable debt, is threatening our very way of life. Now, my point is not about debt. Here's my point. Did you know... Did you know that this book talks a lot about debt in here? <laughs> Imagine that. I mean, um, take a trip through the book of Proverbs someday and find out what this book has been saying for millennia about debt. Imagine that. Imagine some of the pitfalls we could have avoided personally and nationally if we had sought the counsel of this here book. Let me give you another example. Have you heard of purity pledges? <laughs> um, I, I think you, I mean, they, they've really kind of been much in the news lately. They're these. These pledges that teens make that they're going to remain pure until marriage. Um, the Jonas Brothers, which is the teen pop sensation, they have been made the brunt of numerous jokes because the, the Jonas Brothers wear purity rings. Did you know that? Well, um, right after the first of the year, there was a big research project that came out and said, the purity pledges don't work. And um, they went on to, I mean, they talk about these flimsy, religious, peer-pressured pledges. They don't work. And they are quickly thrown out the, the fog-covered um, windows of the backseat of a car. And then, not to be outdone... The, uh, the conservatives rallied and said, oh, we object. Um, your research project was skewed. Uh, you chose the wrong um, group of people, uh, sample group to draw your information from. Yes, they do work. Now, guys, I'm not here to tell you whether they do work or don't work. Very frankly, I don't know. But um, did you know? Did you know that this book has a lot of information about moral and sexual purity in it? Imagine that. Um, it's got a lot of good counsel about temptation and how to avoid it. It says a good deal about 
um, the body, what, how it's supposed to be viewed, how it's supposed to be treated. Oh, and then, <laughs> this will surprise you. It says a ton in here about marriage. In fact, there are ten commandments in this book, and one of them, ten percent, is devoted to a course of sexual purity. Guys, you can take this counsel or you can leave it. You can poo-poo it. But tell me this. How would you describe the present status of teenage sexual morality in our day? What would you say? You know, guys, please don't misunderstand me because I'm not trying to pick on and I'm not trying to take advantage of the pain. I think evangelicals ought to be shot who are... who are. But And I'm not doing that. But I'm telling you, all of us ought to groan under the... Under the tragedy of the Spear sisters, Brittany and Jamie Lynn, that's not funny. And that's not something that we ought to take pleasure in. It's tragic. But I'm simply saying, there, it's just a, it just typifies a culture who has determined that we are going to live outside the counsel of this book. Guys, my, my, the only point that I'm trying to make is that, that one of the things that this book claims to be is a counselor. It cla- I mean, in, in this psalm, we are told that this, the precepts and the statutes of this book are, to, are my counselor. Free counseling. Never again have to pay $110 an hour. It's all free right here. That's the first role. The second role has to do that it claims to be my sustainer or my my uh, preserver or my comforter. Let me read you just bits and pieces. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verses 50 through 52. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insult, the insolent... Uh, utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. Verses 92 and 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Guys, um, it is no surprise to anybody that's um, got anything above a 27 IQ that this life contains a whole lot of difficulty and affliction and suffering. None of us... None of us get out of this life unscathed, do we? 
It may be health issues. It may be family issues or money or marriage or parenting or or, or, or even enemies. But none of us are going to get out without having to face some of it. What David says in Psalm 119 is that in the midst of his own sorrows, David sought to deal with and cope with and 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 think of his circumstances, his problems, through the lens and the grid of things that he got from this book. That is, he tried to he, he he tried to affect his perspective by thinking through the things that God has said to him in here. Now, for the moment, just permit me a brief digression. Um, You do know, don't you, that the people who believe that this book is inspired and inerrant and um, the very mind of God is black words and are white, error-free, those people are few and far between. And they're becoming fewer and farer between. Now, that's the end of my digression. Here's my point. Um... If you turn this book into something that's not much more of not much more value than, say, poor Richard's almanac, um, then tell me, my friend, where do you turn in the dark night of your soul? What what do you want me to say to you when I come see you in the emergency room? I mean, I, I, I can't, I have no word from God for you because you've succeeded in removing that authoritative voice. And, and not only that, what do you want me to tell your grieving relatives at your funeral? You want me to say, buck up! I mean, um, it's the survival of the fittest. You know, there's a little event in the life of Jesus in John 6 um, where Jesus has taught some very tough stuff. I mean, he, he really has um, uh, pounded his audience. And, and the text says, as a result of what Jesus taught, many were following him no more. This is in John 6, 66. And, and nobody followed him any longer because of um, what he was teaching. And so Jesus, in a, in a moment of abject pathos, looks at the twelve and he says, Are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter says this, Lord, where would we go? <laughs> I mean, Lord, you have the words of life. Guys, what advice do you have for me when my world turns upside down? If you don't have some kind of word from God for me, my soul will continue to ache. 
what I'm simply saying is that one of the things that David appreciated about this book is that when he was suffering, he used it as the thing to help control his fear. He, he used it, the promises and the descriptions and the perspectives that he found here to calm his soul as he tried to get, get some sleep that night. Take this away from me. And where do I go? Where are you going to send me? What do you want me to say to you when I visit you in the emergency room? See, this book, it's my sustainer. It's my provider. It's my preserver. It's my comforter. Now, those things I think you probably knew long before you got here, but let me... Let me close with a third role that this book is supposed to play. And it, it was found in the text that I, that I read to you in verses 41 through 48. Um, I'd like to just draw your attention back, if you will, um, to verse 44 and verse 45. Let me read those to you again. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Now, gang, first of all, the first thing that I have to do in explaining that is to do a little bit of grammar or a little bit of um, explanation. If you'll notice in verse 45, it says, I shall walk in a wide place. If you've got an NIV Bible or the New King James Bible, it says something like this. I will walk at liberty. But then it has a little note in your Bibles and it'll say, and then it'll go over to the middle of the, or the bottom of the page and it'll say, walk in a wide place. Now, guys, think with me for a second. If you're walking in a narrow place, uh, you can only walk in a straight line because it's so narrow. But if you're walking in a wide place, that means you have options. You can walk over here. 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 You can walk over here because you're, you're walking in a wide place. All I'm trying to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is that this, this is a Hebrew idiom. It's a, it's a metaphor for freedom or liberty. He says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in freedom. I'll walk in a wide place. Guys, the third role that the Bible plays for me is that the, it plays the role of liberator. You know, we have such a distress distorted view of freedom. For instance, in John chapter 8, you remember that, that great section where Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free? It's, that's John eight thirty two. Remember that? Do you remember what the reply, what the response of the, the, the Jews were when Jesus said that? Jesus said, um, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And, and the guys that he were talking to, all Jews, they, they said this in, in, re, in response. They said, ha. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. What? <laughs> You've never been enslaved to anyone? Did you forget Egypt? 
I mean, we've got a, we've got an annual event called the Passover that's supposed to remind you of the bondage from which you came out of Egypt. And by the way, did you forget Babylon? You remember that 70 years of captivity? What are you saying? We've never been in bondage to anyone. My point is, guys, um, it is our, it's, it's our nature to deny that we are slaves to something. Um, we, we don't, we don't consider ourselves slaves. We don't, we don't think of ourselves slaves. But listen to this next statement that Jesus makes in response to that. He says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Guys, how many bondages did you bring in here this morning? Is it in a little orange vial? Or is it in a much bigger, clear bottle? Or maybe a brown? Or maybe, maybe it comes when I hit a few strokes on the computer board. Gang, for, for the, for the modern mind, freedom is defined in purely negative terms. By that I mean this. When, when, when the 21st century man thinks of freedom, he thinks of freedom from. That he's, that he's got to be in charge and free from any outside restrictions whatsoever. I'm my own Authority, my own spiritual authority. Anything less than that in the modern mind is bondage. I put myself under no one or no thing. But ladies and gentlemen, I, I submit to you that that is, that is to misunderstand how freedom works. One doesn't give up one's freedom when he obeys God. He he gains his freedom. Freedom is having the right restrictions, not no restrictions. Can I give you some examples? Health. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, um, do you think that I have permission to eat anything I want as much as I want of it? What would happen to me if I did that? But no, no, we, we know, we know better than that. But if I apply the 21st century understanding of that definition of freedom to my health, I'll be a diabetic by Valentine's Day. Gang, we, we, we don't, we wouldn't dream of doing something like that. We enjoy the freedom of good health by placing some self-imposed restrictions on ourselves. And that gains for us freedom. I'll give you another one. Marriage. Let's imagine a conversation like this taking place on one's wedding night. 
ceremony's over. They've gotten to the place they're going to spend their first night. And he says to his, um, his new bride, he says, now, honey, I, I love you a, a whole lot. And, um, and I'm looking forward to us spending our lives together. But, but, but before we go forward in this, in this marriage, we got to get a few things straight. Because I need to ask you, what kind of relationships uh, are you going to permit me to have with other women? Um, will, uh, <clears throat> can I kiss them? Um, can, I, can I sleep with them? Um, you, you don't mind a, a few affairs every now and then, do you? Gang, don't you remember how relationships happen? This is how it goes. We find somebody, we go out on a date somehow. And then we decide, hmm, that was, not, that was nice, we're going to try it again. And we go out on the second date, and the third date, and the fourth date. And pretty soon, we decide, okay, we need to make this an exclusive dating relationship. Just me dating you, honey, and you dating me. No, no long-term commitments, but that's our first step. So... In the midst of that exclusive dating relationship, I decide, you know, I need to go down to Oxford and, and see some of my friends. So I drive down there and I decide I'm going to catch a game and, and, uh, and I'm going to spend the night down there. And, um, I turn my, my, my cell phone off and I'm just going to spend the weekend down in Oxford and I'm going to come back, um, you know, Sunday night and, uh, then go to work Monday morning. When I get back to my apartment, my answering machine is blinking at me and, and she's saying, where are you? Where are you? Why, why didn't you call me? What has happened, ladies and gentlemen? The, the, the more this relationship intensifies, the less freedom I have. I give up some freedoms so that I can have intimacy in a relationship. Tell me, my friends. When do you feel the most free in a relationship? It's those that are the deep, committed, lifelong relationships where you, where you give up your rights to self-determination so that you can have the freedom of intimacy within a relationship. To be free, I must be bound. Guys, if you're ever going to enjoy the the sweetnesses of knowing and being known in a relationship, they're going to require that you sacrifice your independence and your autonomy. A modern definition of freedom violates your very nature. Human nature, guys, soars and it excels in the service of God because I'm built to serve this God. Verse 45 says that I am free because I have placed myself under, under, the authority of this book. I have become free by losing my independence. <laughs> just, um, just 
just a quick little example if you decide not to do something like that. You know, folks, um, there is a commandment in the Ten Commandments, the ninth one, and it has to do with telling the truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And most social scientists, most um, political scientists will tell you that the thing that ultimately did the Soviet Union in, when the Soviet Union um, broke up in 1989, the wall fell, most political scientists will tell you that the thing that ultimately did them in was that the populace could not believe one thing the government ever said. In fact, it got so bad that in their morning newspaper called the Pravda, Pravda is a Russian word that means truth, <laughs> it got so bad in, in, in the Soviet Union that people couldn't believe the weather report. And the thing that ultimately did them in was a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Ladies and gentlemen, to gain freedom, I give up my autonomy and yield myself to the God who has written this book and entrusted it to us. Psalm 119, among other things, is a call for us to place ourselves under God's authority. To, to allow this book to scrutinize me and to tell me how I'm supposed to change. If you decide not to accept this book as your final authority, then what is your final authority? We all know the answer to that, don't we? My final authority is me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible calls You flip over to the New Testament in John chapter 1 verse 1 and it starts like this. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. I say that to say this. This Word is about that Word. That is Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. This is the inscripturated Word. He is the incarnate Word. And the call of Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is for you to yield yourself. Submit yourself to the one who is my teacher, my counselor, my sustainer, my comforter, and the one who has set me free. And his name, of course, is Jesus Christ. Have you ever yielded yourself to Jesus Christ?
Father, I do pray that you will um, use my vain babblings to point people towards the beauty, not simply of this book, but to the person to whom this book points. Might they see not so much um, the worship of a of an inscripturated word as the worship of an incarnate word. Might they see Jesus Christ in all of his beauty as portrayed in this book and find yielding to him their great delight. Father, for the rest of us who have done so, we bless you. We, we thank you for what you provided for us in Christ and also in this book. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.